Welcome to Journal Spotting. Were your school teachers right? Are psychedelics really dangerous tree-hugging hippie drugs? Or are they safe medications that might play a crucial role in modern medicine? Your ears are in the right place to find out. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting. And today, we have an awesome journal chat with psychedelic medicine expert, Professor Alan Young. I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and tonight I am joined once again by an esteemed co-host, Dr. Cami Hirons. Barney, I'm going to come out and ask what we've all been thinking. Why are we delving into psychedelic medications? It's not exactly general medicine, and it's a bit out there. Is this sign of some sort of hippie midlife crisis which I need to worry about? <laughs> I mean, hey, look, I'm not going to rule that out. That actually actually sounds quite fun. But no, this, the reason I'm doing it is this is a fascinating area of medicine and research which we should all be aware of. The history behind the use of psychedelics is so interesting. And in general, as medics, we know very little about them, bar the usual horror stories and urban myths which we learned in school. Over the past few years, there has been a huge resurgence in interest in these as a class of medication, and soon enough, we may even be able to prescribe them. So, I feel it's probably important we understand how, why, and when they work. Okay, okay, you have sparked my interest. Now, if the audience hasn't already, flick back to our last roundup, now or later, where we summarised a couple of recent articles on this topic too. Sibani, who is Professor Young and why did you choose him to discuss psychedelics? Glad you asked. Okay, Professor Alan Young, aside from being a lovely guy, has a pretty incredible biography, especially from a research point of view. Let's see. He has authored over 400 publications and multiple books, mostly relating to severe psychiatric diseases and mood disorders. Titles and accolades include being uh, a consultant psychiatrist and clinical academic lead in South London, chair of mood disorders and director of the Centre for Effective Disorders at King's College London, where he is also vice dean for academic psychiatry. He's also head of the National Effective Disorders Tertiary Clinic. And in 2014, he was ranked as one of the world's leading scientific minds in the field of psychiatry and psychology, according to the Thompson Reuters highly cited researchers list. Well, that sounds ridiculously impressive. Um, But I haven't actually heard of that award. What does it mean? So um, it looks at science as a whole. And in science, there are a total of about 3000 researchers worldwide who have earned this distinction. And these academics are ranked among the top 1% most cited for their subject field. Essentially, it's a mark and appreciation of exceptional impact and influence. Wow. Okay, and now to top it all off, the pinnacle of his career, the highly revered journal spotting interview. Absolutely right. The lucky guy. (laughs) This is just going to go on his biography. This is going to go just underneath that that accolade, I think, that award. We need to get an acronym for it, don't we? uh, (laughs) JSA, the Journal Spotting Award. Keep it simple. Perfect. Off the top of my head. There we go. I'm running for it. (laughs) (laughs) I've listened to the interview, Barney, and you cover a huge amount of fascinating topics with Professor Young. The history of psychedelics, how they work in a language even I understood, and a 
brilliant summary of the recent evidence and thoughts of the future of this ancient yet still novel and misunderstood class of medications. I mean, there's something here for everyone. Before we start, listeners, as always, follow us and rate us on any podcast library you like and spread the word by sharing our links with your friends and co-workers. And if you want a free journal spotting mug for your doctor's mess, UK or elsewhere, send us an email with the details to journalspotting at gmail.com and we'll sort you out. Right, on with the interview. Yeah, let's listen to it. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really exciting to have you with us. Since we came up with the idea of this podcast, this episode, I've been reading a bit about uh, the, the these trials you've been involved with, the work you've been doing, and especially your latest articles. And it's really a really fascinating topic. So first of all, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you this evening. I think to get started, what we're going to do is ask you some very short questions, which is going to form a bit of a baseline to what we're going to chat about later on. So, Alan, are psychedelics dangerous? I mean, I think the way to think about drugs is not uh, good or bad drugs, uh, but simply uh, drugs which have uh, a balance of benefits and harms. Uh, and of course, the background is the amount of information that we know about that. So as far as we can say, um, the harms from psychedelics appear to be um, less than some other uh, drugs, such as alcohol or possibly cannabis, and certainly than heroin. And the benefits, although they're emerging, um, may be considerable. Of course, the background of the amount of evidence is that much of it is old and much of it is not from controlled uh, experiments. But nevertheless, uh, I would say they're reasonably uh, safe in general, uh, which is not to say that some people might suffer individual harms. So that's hardly a yes or a no answer. But it's, a <laughs> it's a complicated one, though. Absolutely. Um, have you ever taken psychedelics? No, I've never taken psychedelics. Um, I personally uh, would be quite happy to take psychedelics. Um, my main objection to taking drugs uh, of um, abuse is one of um, the quality control and the production of the drug. I, I used to work in Vancouver in Canada. And local colleagues did a, an analysis of uh, cannabis sold in the street and it did of course have uh, uh, have lots of other stuff in it including other drugs including PCP and heroin insecticides and bleach uh, so so I don't particularly want to take stuff that I don't know uh, what the quality is you might then say well why don't you take uh, magic mushrooms that you go out and pick uh, well um I wouldn't do that because I know someone who did that, got the wrong mushrooms, which were toadstools and had to have a kidney transplant. So I, I have no objection in principle. And at some point I may take us, uh, take psychedelics, but uh, throughout the course of the past uh, few decades of my life, uh, I haven't yet done that. Thinking big, what could be the greatest sort of achievement or outcome that we might see in humans, in medicine, with psychedelics? Well, I think psychedelics, it's a reasonable aim to think that they may become part of our ther therapeutic armamentarium for treating some psychiatric disorders. And I'm thinking particularly of depression, 
but possibly other some other psychiatric disorders uh, that we're currently investigating, perhaps PTSD, perhaps eating disorders, and so on and so forth. I say perhaps so much because the amount of evidence is pretty limited, although it's best for depression and treatment-resistant depression. So I think that would be a realistic possibility, but I think it's going to be a different paradigm from the way that we treat depression at the moment. Um, uh, if you think about how depression is treated, it's treated with talking therapies like cognitive therapy and or drugs like SSRIs, which are both given over a long time. Um, with psychedelics, they are, of course, given combined with psychological support, um, but they would also be given intermittently. Uh, so, you know, once every uh, once every few weeks, and some people may, may, may or may not need even that much. So I think that's a reasonable uh, goal. I think we've also got to be aware, and this is a worry from some clinicians, including myself, that there are some conditions potentially, um, and this is no more than intuition, that psychedelics may make worse. So some types of personality disorder, perhaps, such as emotionally unstable personality disorder, perhaps some psychotic disorders. Um, so I think we've got to be very, very cautious about it. But nevertheless, I think that's a... That's something that I can foresee happening in the next, uh, you, you know, the next decade, perhaps by the end of this decade, that might be uh, something that's happening clinically. Now, we're going to backtrack a little bit and we're going to try and get the audience to get to know you a little bit. So um, do you mind introducing yourself and telling our audience about your role, perhaps explaining how you've become a professor of psychedelic medication? Well, well my name is Alan Young. I'm um, clinical academic psychiatrist at King's College London, um, although I've worked in numerous universities. And going back from King's, I was head of department of psychiatry at Imperial. Before that, I worked in Vancouver. I worked in Oxford and I worked in Newcastle. And I'm a professor of mood disorders. So my main interest is mood disorders, although my research area is psychopharmacology. And of course, psychedelics are a part of psychopharmacology. So lots of my work in the past has been on drugs like uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antipsychotics, lithium. Lithium is one of my big interests. And I see uh, the psychedelics as another potential uh, therapeutic uh, tool for us. Uh, and indeed, that's the way they were seen in the past, in the 50s and 60s, right up till Richard Nixon banned them. And suddenly they became, you know, a bad drug, a bad set of drugs that um, were, we weren't able to research on. I'm aware there are many different types of psychedelics out there. Um, most common being magic mushrooms, peyote from cacti, ayahuasca. I think it's from shrubs and roots, isn't it? There's DMT, which is from, you can get from toads. Um, what do they all have in common and what's different about them? Well, the word psychedelic uh, derives from Greek psyche, meaning soul or mind, and delin, meaning to manifest or mind manifest. And that was coined by a British psychiatrist, Humphrey Osmond, who worked in uh, Canada, actually, and uh, was one of the originators of the whole field. Now, there's a number of different uh, potential compounds, uh, a number of compounds which are psychedelics, as you've mentioned they're essentially a class of drugs that act on the brain of the mind or the mind through the brain which trigger non-ordinary states of consciousness uh, 
And they all seem to have a common mechanism of action through a brain receptor called the serotonin or 5-HT2A receptor. And they're all agonists or partial agonists, which means they activate that receptor. Now, the psychedelic experience, which, as we've already uh, discussed, I haven't got personal experience of, is often compared to an altered state of consciousness, similar to that seen in meditation, mystical experiences, or near-death experiences. A sense of ego dissolution uh, is often described as a key experience. And these drugs are generally considered to be non-addictive and physiologically uh, safe. Ego or how did you what did you say then? Ego dis, dis, uh, dissociation was it? Ego dissolution. I think that's. Uh, I mean, I think it is something that's very uh, difficult to describe or really understand what it means without having experienced it. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a, a a sort of lessening of the boundaries between oneself and one's perceptions and the outside uh, outside reality as perceived by the brain. Now we've got a bit of an idea about how. What, what they are, how they work, the sort of effects they have. There is a, a long history of psychedelics throughout humankind, it seems. Can you take us briefly through that, up to where we are today, spiritual, religious use of them, the recreational use, and hopefully now the med- medicinal use? I mean, you know, there's a long history of use of these compounds in different culture and in different cultures in different parts of the world. And Ayasko, as you pointed out is um, a psychedelic which is DMT in it uh, and and some other things uh, and is still used uh, legally in places like Brazil but perhaps the modern history starts with the discovery of LSD by Hoffman who worked for Hoffman LaRoche middle of the last century Um, and this was used quite widely Uh, I mean there was a history of use of LSD, particularly for alcoholism, alcohol disorders in the 50s and 60s. Um, And there's a lot of belief that that really did show some benefits. Now, if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, that's, you know, obviously 60 years ago, and clinical trial methodology was just coming in in its modern form. So uh, there really isn't the high quality evidence that we would uh, demand these days. But you know, James Rucker, who is the person who works most closely with me in this at King's, and I have reviewed this along with colleagues and published it. And, you know, there's lots of evidence of benefits for that. And psychiatrists and psychotherapists um, certainly were convinced of the benefits uh, along, you know, when it was uh, given with psychological support. And of course, it crossed into popular culture, which I think was a bit, you know, probably uh, not helpful, actually. And the famous Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard academic, uh, made, you know, wild, sensational claims about uh, uh, LSD and psychedelics, about tuning in and dropping out and so on. And uh, then this led to a backlash, uh, as exemplified by everyone's favorite U.S. president, Richard Nixon, who in 1970 signed the Controlled Substances Act, which... uh, um, relegated psychedelics to being Schedule One drugs and essentially stopping all scientific investigations. Uh, Nixon, as you know, had lots of clashes with the counterculture and called Leary the most dangerous man in America. And this seems risable. Uh, <laughs> it was risable at the time, but it seems even more ludicrous now. 
So in the 70s to the 90s, um, psychedelics were largely uh, off the grid, underground, and really was recreational uh, and illegal use and some fringe psychotherapy, psychotherapeutic use. They weren't banned everywhere. Uh, you know, and there's still been, uh, I think, some use in Switzerland in a very controlled environment. And then the Renaissance really started with uh, the MAPS Association, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which was founded in the mid-80s to develop a pathway for the use of MDMA, which many would argue is not a classical psychedelic um, in uh, PTSD. And then there was a re-emergence of um, um, scientific interest in this country. It was led by my friend and colleague, Professor David Nutt from Imperial College, who really, uh, with his team, which included Robin Carhart Harris, really led the way. And small studies were done looking at uh, OCD and other things, and particularly um, treatment-resistant depression. And then there was work in Hopkins, John Hopkins in the United States, uh, looking at uh, the benefits of psilocybin in people with um, uh, depression and terminal cancer. Uh, and then we've moved on to today when we're beginning to see the, uh, you know, the emergence of larger, more credible studies and commercial interest in this and a change in the attitude of society uh, and, and, and the politicians, where the arguments about these being potentially credibly beneficial drugs that deserve further investigation are beginning to gain real traction. Fantastic. That's a great summary. Thank you so much. I think we have briefly talked about sort of the risks and dangers, and I think it's worth delving into that a little bit. The reason I think it's interesting is I, growing up, and I'm sure many people um, would hear these stories. I remember the classic one was a man took LSD and you know, he thought, he thought he, he thought he was an orange and started peeling his skin off. And I remember people talking about this at school, these, these crazy drugs which did this sort of thing. And actually, when I was speaking to some colleagues about uh, doing this interview, they immediately said, oh, well, you know, they, they can't be safe. Let me hear about that story. It's a girl gouging her eyes out. You, you hear these horror stories which still potentially persist. So I suppose my first question is, are there these awful stories? Are they all just urban myths? Is there any evidence that this, these sorts of extreme reactions happen? Yeah, I think there is. And... You, when I talked about safety, I was really talking about physiological safety. Um, but of course, you know, there could be what's called in popular culture a bad trip and someone could do something that endangered them, thinking they could fly and so on and so forth. And I think that's why it's very important that they're given under um, controlled conditions in a therapeutic environment with skilled uh, therapists assisting the person uh, throughout the um, throughout the uh, experience. This is one of the disadvantages of LSD, which is the prolonged half life. So, if you do have a, a so-called you know bad trip or aversive experience with LSD, it will last quite a long time. Uh, and uh, you know that's different from psilocybin, where it's a much shorter half life. Do you know the sort of figures for the half-life for those two? I can't tell you off the top of my head, but essentially we usually see a, a, a session with the psilocybin taking place during the course of one day where the effect would uh, wear out. Sometimes it goes on to the evening and the team end up staying a little bit late. But, you know, that's so it happens during one day, whereas LSD, it can go on for two or three days, I believe. Um, 
And uh, so that's one of the problems with LSD, which is otherwise, you know, uh, a very nicely designed drug. So if we get a version of LSD that had a shorter half-life, that would be great interest. So, so I think that speaks to why we need to have the um, we need to have the uh, therapeutic environment, and we need skilled therapists who are trained in this uh, to help people negotiate the experience in a beneficial way. Um, the uh, the uh, other aspects uh, of psychedelics um, which are important, uh, I think, also relate to um, the you know the particular. Uh, problem which is being dealt with and as as i say at the moment we we simply don't know whether it might make some disorders better or worse i mean i doubt very much it's going to be a panacea for all mental ill health uh, and um this this speaks to the um the cases that you hear of you know for example sid barrett from pink floyd or people who were very heavy users of psychedelics and lapsed into a chronic psychotic state. Now, in psychiatry, we're aware that there's a number of potential relationships between drugs and mental illness. So, you know, the drug could precipitate the mental illness, the drug could exacerbate the mental illness, or the drug may be just coincidental. Maybe the person was developing a, you know, a, a psychotic disorder and, uh, related to that decided to sort of abuse drugs so so i think all of these things do need to be studied uh, but this is one of the reasons for having a particular concern and we certainly screen out people who've got any history of psychosis and as i've said uh, also uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder recently i think it's just in the last month or so you published well you're one of the authors and I published an article that was interesting that looked at the risk of uh, magic mushrooms they found that about 0.2% of people who self-reported um, using magic mushrooms sought medical emergency treatment, and of those, only one of them had symptoms more than 24 hours, and the majority of people who had problems were anxiety and panic, and the majority of those people also were mixing the substances as well. So, as you say, sort of yeah. overall, it sounds like the risk is low, but in some people, potentially, it could be quite severe. Yeah, that's Emma Copra's um, paper, Emma, and uh, she's doing a she's doing a PhD with James Rucker and myself. I mean, you've got to remember that if you do a trial and you give people placebo, you have adverse effects and severe adverse effects on 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 placebo. And when we look at trials, it's part of your good clinical practice training and trials that you have to be able to distinguish between you know whether an event is causal or not. And so, you know, any group of people if you're recording everything, will have some effects. But nevertheless, and this is a very, very important point, scrutiny of the benefits and harms of drugs never stops. So, you know, there's the whole phase one where you do the pharmacokinetics, phase two where you do the early signs of efficacy, phase three where you do the regulatory trials uh, that get a license. But then there's phase four where there's monitoring of the use of the drug that may come up with very rare side effects or common side effects which are being missed. And drugs can be withdrawn even after uh, many years of being used. And of course, we can all remember the dreadful example of thalidomide and why this is important and so on and so forth. Having said all that, uh, and that means, of course, that we've got to be cautious about psychedelics. 
My view is that the uh, methodology and the mechanisms that we use for scrutinizing benefits and harms of drugs are much more exacting and much better than for other therapeutic modalities. So we don't do anything like this for psychotherapies. Um, and of course, psychotherapies can have side effects as well. But we just, you know, to some people, that's that's almost a heretical statement to say that talking therapy can cause problems. But of course it can. And Jan Scott and I have published on this. And of course, uh, devices, surgery and so on, uh, neuromodulation, they can all cause uh, adverse effects as well. Uh, but drugs are scrutinized much better. And perhaps some of that methodology should be applied to other therapeutic areas. Thinking of, of specific, specific possible adverse events, um, again, in popular culture, you hear about this idea of flashbacks, people years down the line suddenly reliving their experience. Again, is that an urban myth or is that something which you've seen or you've heard about? Well, we certainly uh, hear about it. Um, um, I'm not convinced that there's much strong evidence about it. And one of the interesting things is that we're actually embarking on trials using psychedelics, uh, psychedelics proper, if I may say, like psilocybin to treat PTSD, as well as, of course, MDMA, which is essentially a 5-HT releasing agent uh, or similar to ecstasy in popular culture. Um, that that has fairly good uh, evidence of benefits for PTSD when combined with the psychological support. So um, I just don't know about the flashbacks. I mean, you know, some 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 of these popular myths have a real foundation in fact, and some don't, of course. And we can think of that from other areas of life. But um, I'm not convinced that this we know enough to say either way about this one. Suddenly, when I realized I was doing this interview, I started reflecting all the things I've heard over the years at medical school and at, and at school about what people said about these things. And it's difficult to, to pick it apart a bit, especially in, with all this latest evidence. Um, one well, population... Can I, can I come in there, Barney? Because it's very interesting because <laughs> there's a feeling of, um, of knowingness about these drugs, which may not be justified. And sometimes we, the same, we see the same things uh, with cannabis. So, for example, um, I've come across lots of people who are absolutely convinced that there are no negative health aspects to cannabis whatsoever. And you can say, well, else, people smoke it. It causes anxiety. Uh, a shockingly high amount of psychosis in London may be due to it and so on and so forth. And it's a little bit like saying you, you don't believe in their religion. Similarly with... Um, with psychedelics, I was giving a, a lecture to a very distinguished academic setting in the States, and um, I won't say which one for fear of embarrassing them, but uh, one of the professors said, uh, we all took uh, magic mushrooms in college, you know, we, we all know about all this. <laughs> that's, that's a remarkably <laughs> unscientific way to address this. Great. That's um, anecdotal evidence at its best, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's also worthwhile, uh, I mean, to my, to my edification, actually, I've begun to follow some of the social media about psychedelics just to understand what people are saying. And it's amazing how people um, who aren't scientifically involved in the field uh, will declare with absolute certainty uh, about psychedelics in uh, you know, 
you know, I mean, there's an old adage in the the, uh, the more you know, the less certain you get. But there's certainly a lot of certainty about psychedelics out there, which I think is unwarranted. Yeah, and probably unsafe. Do you do you get involved in the social media side? Are you are you Professor Young, you Professor Young getting in there and arguing with these confident people? Oh no, no, I, no! I'm just um, a fly on the wall. No, no, I'm a I'm a lurker who just who just listens to what they're saying. I, I mean, it's it, it's a bit like the first law of contact with an alien civilization. You want to intervene as little as possible. But you know, I mean, it's very it is very interesting to to uh, to see what people are saying. So, for example. The notion that SSRIs would block the uh, the effect of um, psychedelics. Now, of course, SSRIs increase synaptic 5-HT. They don't act directly on the postsynaptic 5-HT2A receptor, so there's no direct mechanistic effect, although perhaps they may cause a blunting. But to my mind, we simply just don't know. We don't have the data. But this is a uh, you know very much a, a very strong myth that people will say with absolute certainty. And indeed, James and the team uh, up till now have been have been taking people off SSRIs uh, because of uh, because of this possible effect. But I think what we need to do is to do a study on SSRIs and not on SSRIs and look at the effect of silo psilocybin to see if there is any change. Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, one cohort of people, I suppose, who um, might experiment with drugs and psychedelics are young adults, teenagers, people who have, whose brains are developing. Do we know anything about the potential risk in these people? Um, or is it just, yeah, again, some, something which we're not going to get the evidence for? Well, I don't think there's much evidence, but I'm sure Emma Copra is looking at it at the moment. But we can possibly infer something from the cannabis literature. And the cannabis literature suggests that exposure before the age of 15 uh, can have more lasting consequences than exposure after the age of 15. So uh, so I think that's um, that, that that may well be an effect. But we we are very interested in the, in the effects of age because... Um, of course, you're talking about uh, the age when the brain is still developing, which is really up till 25. Um, brain maturation is often said to to finalise at 25, but of course, your brain doesn't remain static after that. It, there's uh, changes as you go older and more pruning and so on. And there is a belief that um, psychedelics may be more potent in older people and potentially more beneficial uh, and that's a very interesting notion that uh, we're we, we're interested in looking at it may be that certain things need to be fully established before they can be you know uh, acted on uh, by these agents uh, we just don't know but it's something we've been talking about uh, James Rucker and myself and others in the past few in the past few weeks and people are very interested about the effects of psychedelics in you know, perhaps what we might call older adults, people aged over 50 and so on. That's fascinating. Is that in some way it's increasing plasticity of the brain in some way um, or is it, we, we don't know at the moment? I doubt it's, I mean, there's a whole other podcast about increasing brain plasticity because we have we have done a little bit of work on that. And potentially there are molecular mechanisms whereby you could do that, but this is, to my, to my knowledge, not related to the 5-HT mechanism. 
it's rather that you've you've got a brain and a mind which is matured to the point where you know you may um, uh, you may benefit more. And if you look back into psychedelics before they were prohibited, you had some very uh, uh, senior, clever people who who were very taken with the effect. And of course, Aldous Huxley uh, being being the great example with his experience with psychedelics. Uh, he was very friendly with Humphrey Osmond, and he also wrote The Doors of Perception. Interesting. Okay. You have um, you have mentioned a little bit before about sort of, again, we've, we've talked about the danger of them. And I just wanted to try and get straight that, you know, the risks of, say, psychedelics compared to other perhaps recreational drugs. You've, I think you've talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but could you take us through that a little bit? So, yeah, and what you what your views are on that? Well, I mean, I think my views are based on the uh, very nice paper by Dave Nutt that was in The Lancet, looking at the ratio between um, benefits and harms. And if you if you look at that, psychedelics are one of the much safer drugs. And, you know, drugs like uh, opiates, uh, alcohol, uh, and so on are all are all much, much more dangerous. We, we always have to get risk into perspective, of course. And, you know, remember that uh, one of the commonest causes of death is falling down stairs. And uh, I think the commonest cause of death in the United States of children, despite the tragedies of the last few days, is still swimming pools. And no one's talking about banning uh, stairs or, or, or swimming pools. But then, of course, that's related to the amount of exposure in the population and so on and so forth. Recently, in the BBC, actually, it came out that it was the gun guns were the biggest cause. Yeah, you know, it was tra- traffic accidents and things. But actually, in just in the last year, the data shows that guns are the uh, biggest cause of death in children. But uh, anyway, that's the total, very much a sideline. Well, that's <laughs> another podcast about the horrors Ex- of isn't guns. Isn't exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Please carry on. But well, there's a couple of points worth making. One is that by by any um, reasonable assessment of the data, these drugs are abs- absolutely reasonably safe and also much safer than some other drugs that we take, um, including that nice glass of Sauvignon Blanc or Shiraz that you're going to have after this podcast. The other thing that should be said, which was always pointed out by my great friend, the late Professor Heather Ashton, who was a fantastic uh, psychopharmacologist in Newcastle and very interested in the whole area of abuse. Uh, And she did the National Survey of Student Drug and Alcohol Habits, is that people don't take drugs or alcohol in isolation. There's quite a strong correlation. So we may talk about individual, you know, the, the safety of this drug or that drug. But in actual fact, people are usually quite promiscuous. They take they they take different drugs. And they also, if they take drugs recreationally, tend to take more alcohol. So, uh, you know, in it's messy in the actual real world. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you, you know, anybody who spent time with patients in who have been, yeah, have abused any sort of substance will find that actually it's never as simple as we like to think in medical school and as a junior doctor, perhaps. Now, historically, I know psychedelics are often taken with, you know as part of a ritual with a shaman or a group. Um, and you mentioned that if they were to be taken, they should be taken with a therapist, somebody to guide you. I'm trying, I, what I'm trying to understand is, is, is there therapeutic benefit in just purely taking, say, psilocybin, for, for instance, 
or does it have to be with someone who can guide you through the experience for there to be benefit? I think that's a, a key question. And um, I think if we look at the new drugs that are coming in, we essentially have two different models. Um, so we have the model of administering the new drug, which is a bit like a visit to the dentist. Uh, and that's how, for example, ketamine, we give ketamine infusions. It's done in a clinical setting. People with white coats, we make sure that we can take blood pressure and so on and so forth. Um, and then when the side effect of ketamine comes on, which are not are not psychedelic per se, but there, there's about 30% of people will, 35% of people will have a dissociation, uh, which is not necessary for the antidepressant effect. But nevertheless, we explain that as a side effect and it vanishes within 60 to 90 minutes. So that's the that's going to the dentist type approach. And there there is a, there is a psychotherapeutic benefit from from all of the attendant paraphernalia with going to a clinical setting. Let's be quite clear about that. That does boost, uh, that would boost the therapeutic benefit. Now, the other end, which is what we do in psychedelic trials, uh, and currently James, uh, uh, Catherine and the team, uh, Liam, uh, they, they transform the clinical research facility from a, a rather stark uh, clinical entity to something that's uh, much more... Uh, much more like the living room in your own house, uh, or if you want to be perhaps a bit extreme, a bit like an Amsterdam nightclub in the 70s. Uh, and, and there's much there's softer lighting, there's yeah. there's furnishing and so on and so forth, and, and they guide people through. Now, we haven't done enough research to know what's which is the best way. We did publish a paper in Journal of Psychopharmacology, which I edit uh, a few editions ago, suggesting that if you used... The, the psilocybin milieu for ketamine, you might actually get more benefits. So this is something to, to be explored. And it also brings us back to the very term psychopharmacology. So it's not all just about the drug, the, the psychological effect, the milieu, the, the, the interactive therapeutic relationship has always been known to be important. And one of the great things about this uh, new uh, whole stream of research is it's addressing that up front, actually. It's seen very much as being the drug and the uh, psychotherapeutic component in terms of the interaction with the therapist uh, that's that's important. So so I think this is great, actually, because these are important things that perhaps we've not paid enough attention to in the past. Does that taper down who this might be, might be able to offer it to? Because, say, for instance... In the future, if this does become widespread, which it sounds like we, we hope it will, hopefully it will, we will continue to see the benefits from the trials. Um, is this something which a GP could prescribe you as a course of psychedelics? Or it sounds like it would have to be under very controlled settings and perhaps only in the most severe cases of depression or psychological illness. Well, we don't really know. Uh, we don't really know. I mean, the... I mean, there's... There, there's a problem with the whole term mental health, <laughs> actually, because you know we all have we all have mental health, um, and we all have um, experience of uh, moods that go up and downs and feeling anxious, and you know we're not we all don't have experience of psychosis and so on in my in my view, but at a certain threshold, this lapses into into mental disorder. 
but remember mental disorder itself uh, there's a perhaps a hard nub uh, certainly of depression of people who have unremitting or relapsing disorders which are really very severe and very devastating and a, a, perhaps even a bigger group of people who will have these perhaps only once and it may only last a couple of months uh, I don't know but I suspect we're actually going to see a drift towards treatments which are available for the individual to think about using themselves uh, and it's possible that psychedelics may may uh, may end up occupying that niche. I mean, it's possible that they may be something which, you know, lots of people like my questioner in the United States who said, oh, they'd all used it in college, so they all knew about it. Perhaps <laughs> it might be something uh, which is used by people generally uh, in an episodic fashion to, to stop them getting unwell. I'm thinking about another modality of treatment, which is uh, neuromodulation. And there's already commercially available devices which uh, cause some form of brain stimulation, uh, you know, transdermal cranial stimulation or whatever, which people can buy across the internet and which do have some uh, evidence of benefit for preventing or treating depression. So fascinating. it's very uncertain how this is all going to pan out, but certainly it, it may well end up being done in specialized clinics for treatment resistant cases, or it may be a very generalized treatment. It's really interesting. I think it's going to be so fascinating to see how it pans out over the next years. Can we talk a little bit about microdosing? Um, and this is something which I've yes. up a bit about just because it seems to be, again, in popular culture, it seems to be getting more popular. So I mean, you've got some celebrities who swear by it and things for our audience. So what is it? And do you think it is beneficial? Hmm. Well, uh, I would be rather sceptical on about sure. what celebrities say. Uh, not, not that I don't think there are modern gods, but it's just that uh, very often <laughs> yeah. they don't know what they're talking about, uh, which doesn't seem to stop them, actually. So my, my, microdosing is this notion that you can take much, much smaller doses, and um, that will uh, have some of the same effect. Now, as far as we can tell, uh, that probably is a myth. Um, the the small doses don't appear to have any different effect from placebo. We've actually done studies or taken part in studies where we do, say, uh, a milligram of psilocybin, 10 milligrams and 25, and it was really only the 25 that had the beneficial effect and the one milligram essentially acted as a control. And that's is about as good evidence in a controlled trial of microdosing as you can get, but there's other studies that suggest that as well. So I suspect that the microdosing effect is is essentially a placebo effect. Uh, that's not to say it's not powerful. And we actually know that placebo effects can have their, their basis, at least in part, in underlying brain changes, uh, which is extraordinary, actually. Again, again, it goes back to what psychopharmacology is. I'm thinking of a study that my colleagues did in Vancouver in Parkinson's where they gave a drug for Parkinson's and a placebo and some of the people with Parkinson's responded to the placebo but those people who responded to the placebo showed an increased release of brain dopamine. Yeah, wow. So uh, I suspect microdosing is essentially a placebo effect but the caveat is that we don't know whether that's true in people that have done repeated microdosing over you know long periods of time 
where there may be a sensitization effect such that it is actually having an effect. So, so I wouldn't rule it out entirely, but at the moment it seems to me to be most likely to be mostly placebo. Watch this space. Fascinating. Yeah, watch the whole space. Absolutely. <laughs> well, take some psychedelics and you'll be able to see the space anyway. Oh, well, maybe I will one day, Barney. <laughs> um, would you like to take us a little bit through what your current studies are, what you're looking at right now, and what future studies you're hoping to start up? Well, I mean, if you look at the whole area of um, these drugs, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a wider area of rapidly acting uh, antidepressant drugs. So this would include ketamine. Uh, there's a drug called Zuranolone, which is approved in the United States for postnatal depression and is undergoing trials for um, depression. And, uh, of course, ketamine acts on glutamate and Zuranolone acts on GABA, and these are both intermittent, fast-acting treatments, so that's going to change that, but they're not psychedelics per se. The MDMA uh, for PTSD, uh, James Rucker and I will be doing that and we are starting that imminently. I think the literature for the MDMA uh, effect, again combined with uh, the psychological support in PTSD, is pretty impressive, and I think it is actually going to be part of the therapeutic armamentarium, which is actually a real a real advance. And then with the, uh, with the psychedelics, uh, we are doing work with Compass Pathways, who are uh, a UK company, and they're sponsoring a number of studies. I mean, just to go back a bit, when, when Dave Nutt first started trying to do research on psilocybin, it was difficult to get hold of any uh, medicinal, uh, uh, psilocybin of acceptable uh, medicinal uh, quality, well, you know, like you'd want a decent quality of aspirin or whatever, something that satisfied GMP, good manufacturing product. Uh, requirements. Now we now have companies that make these, we're now allowed to use them, foremost among those is Compass who are one of our big partners and we are doing research in them in treatment resistant depression and James Rucker is uh, leading that. We've also got support from the National Institutes of Health Research to do studies in treatment resistant depression with psilocybin as well. We've got plans to do research in anorexia and there's also work underway in PTSD. But this is all early phase work. I mean, uh, it will take a good five years to get a credible signal. But I think I'm fairly confident that there will be benefit in the treatment-resistant depression field from the results I've seen so far, which are not fully published yet. Um, but I think I think uh, we do actually have posters coming up, out about in the next few weeks. But I think uh, I think the early... The early trial on treatment-resistant depression was about as good a result as I could hope for. Um, so, so I'm cautiously optimistic there. You mentioned most of the areas which I was I was going to ask about. There was a couple. One was palliative care. You mentioned at the beginning. I think that was a fairly old study which showed there was some benefit there. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean there are studies from John Hopkins and other places uh, looking at. Uh, palliative care and psychedelics and they essentially seem to provide benefits um i mean years ago uh we we tried to do a study on this um studying um the treatment of uh people who were in palliative care who were depressed uh, and the ethics committee refused to 
refused to allow us to do it on the basis that these people were in terminal care. And to my mind, um, you know, uh, and I've looked after people like this, if you've got depression and someone's got a limited life expectancy, then you should treat it in a way as quickly as possible so they don't die depressed. Um, but nevertheless, that didn't get across yeah. to the ethics committee. So I think there's great Gosh. scope for palliative care. And, um, you know, we may see a lot more of that in the future. And another angle was this idea of uh, psychedelics helping to change perspective and even sort of perhaps on a lower down level, but people helping people to change their bad lifestyle choices, that sort of thing, helping them to um, go down a new angle in life. Have you, have you thought much about that? Is that something which is being looked at? Yeah, I mean, the, the global drug survey, uh, which Emma Copra and James and others uh, are looking at, has got uncontrolled data from really quite a large, uh, it's been collected really quite a large number of people internationally. And the people who take psychedelics appear to generally have a sort of healthier lifestyle, if you want to use it as such a term. Now, we're not sure whether that's chicken or egg, uh, it's possible course, that the yeah. it's possible that people who you know it's a bit like the argument about the benefits of vegetarianism or veganism the people who take it up maybe the people who are more concerned about it anyway uh, but nevertheless it's it's certainly not against the notion that uh, psychedelics may have some more general beneficial effects for your other aspects of your life okay so Alan we're sort of we're we're kind of getting to the end of all the things I was thinking about talking about. So I think one question which people will be wondering is, do you think that psychedelics like magic mushrooms, potentially like LSD, uh, should they should they be legalized? Um, or do you think they need to be, there still need to be strict controls on them? Well, I mean, I think I can foresee a situation where they become prescription medicines. And I think that would be a great advance. I think th these drugs being so difficult and you're needing a home office license and this that and the other um i don't i really don't think that's uh, sensible in any way whatsoever and of course we all know the history about that and so on and so forth but i certainly wouldn't want them to become like aspirin without a great deal more information but i can see in a situation where in the near future where they become another licensed uh, medical treatment and uh, can be used in clinical settings Brilliant. And I'm going to sort of infer from that, that the advice to somebody who was thinking about using them recreationally would be um, not to, because they are a medication which should be done under safe, safe circumstances and in a controlled way when you know what you're taking. Would that be, is that, or am I putting words into your mouth or? No, of course I would say that. And, you know, remember my friend who, well, a friend of a friend who picked them, took them and it turned out to be toadstools and he knocked out his kidney uh his kidneys and required a transplant so that's an extreme case of course but um yeah. no i mean i i mean i personally don't think people should take you know they shouldn't take drugs where they don't know what the drugs i mean i'm perfectly personally perfectly happy to take drugs and in fact in the past i've taken antidepressants and haloperidol and steroids and so on as part of experiments um but um, my analogy that I use is that uh, we want to have, uh, you know, bottled water or high quality tap, tap, tap water. You don't want to go out and drink out of a puddle on, you know, Lambeth High Street where you don't know 
what pollutants are in it. And, and that's what, to my mind, recreational drugs are. Now, people say that's not true if I grow my own cannabis and that's not true if I pick my own mushrooms. And, you know, perhaps. But uh, I, I think apart from anything else, there's the question of the, uh, you know, what, what you're actually taking. Wonderful. Thank you. Alan, is there anything else you can think of which we haven't covered? No, I mean, I think I think psychedelics are... You know, it's a very interesting um, area. Uh, there's lots of people and lots of the research has been led by the UK, by Dave Nutt and by Robin Kahar Hartz, who's gone off to San Francisco. God bless his cotton socks. And, uh, of course, James James Rucker and um, his team uh, who work with me uh, and, of course, the support of Compass and others. But there's been an almost unrealistic um expectation that these drugs will be almost like a sort of miracle cure and of course that that does lead to disappointment because i think they're likely probably to be very helpful in some clinical circumstances but uh, i don't think anything is likely to be a miracle cure uh, unfortunately yeah that's a shame isn't it we get very excited by these not really new medications but novel look at these medications and well I mean, we just need to see what happened with Prozac. I mean, SSRIs came in, to my mind, and I started in psychiatry before SSRIs. Uh, SSRIs came in. Their main advantage was safety. They became these miracle drugs in popular culture, and they were you know, going to change everything, and people wrote books about them. And then the pendulum swung the other way. And, you know, uh, some people now make ridiculously inflated claims about how how bad they are whether they're they're safe drugs but their efficacy whilst definite was all was almost you know always known to be uh, limited although helpful to some people yeah yeah that's a good analogy alan thank you so much we've talked about so many factors we've taken us through a whole journey of psychedelics from recreational to the dangers to the what you're doing now in the future it's been so interesting talking to you what would your key take-home points for our listeners be uh, from our conversation well i think the the key thing there's a number of key points i would say first of all if you're thinking about drugs you should be thinking about the ratio of benefits to harms and you should also be thinking about the evidence that that's based on and on that using that way of looking at things psychedelics are pretty safe um, I think the other thing to say is beware of the hype. Uh, you know, you've always got to think about what what the actual evidence is. Uh, and at the moment, with the exception of MDMA for PTSD, we're early stages with uh, with with the psychedelics. Although, as I've said, for treatment resistant depression, it certainly is looking as though it will benefit quite a lot of people. And also, the key thing is it's this new modality of having an intermittent treatment, which you know, may well have an effect after one dose that lasts for a few weeks, but then you may need to repeat it. And lastly, it's the combination between, uh, you know, the, the the cycle and the pharmacology, between the, the drug and the, uh, the the psychological milieu or the assisted therapy, which we, we think is very important. And of course, we've always said that's important in psychiatry, but perhaps we've allowed the pharmacology to to dominate the uh, the psychological or psychotherapeutic part uh, too much. But I think it is a very interesting area. There's huge excitement about it. Um, and, you know, every 
every scientist, whenever they're speaking about their area of research, always says more research is needed, but that's exactly what is needed here. Uh, but there's lots underway and we'll see lots of evidence coming in over the next uh, period of time. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Congratulations on all the work you've done and uh, good luck with all the upcoming studies. Well, thank you, Barnaby. But before we finish, I should say the work wasn't really done by me. It was done by people like uh, like uh, James, Catherine, uh, Liam and the rest of the team at King's. And uh, the credit is entirely theirs. And if there's anything that's been wrong with what I've said, the fault is mine. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. You have a great evening. Take care. So there we have it, Cammy. Um, it was a great interview. It was really interesting chatting to him, and I, like, I felt like I learned a lot as I was talking to him. Um, what do you think you might take home from all of this? Well, you covered loads of fascinating stuff, Barney. I feel I've got a much better handle on what psychedelics actually are and, and how they work. And I can feel this growing excitement about their potential use. Yeah, true. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, look... It's always exciting when a novel type of medication comes in um, to help with such a ubiquitous and damaging problem such as mental health issues. But as Prof. Allen alludes to, it's perhaps easy to get a bit overexcited, isn't it? And, you know, they probably won't turn out to be the elixir of all, but they do look promising in quite a large number of areas, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, even if it gives us a safe alternative to antidepressants, I mean, that has a huge potential benefit for thousands of people. I also really love the idea of using them to help change people's views and mindset, such as helping them to adjust to lifestyle changes. Clearly a really interesting area, but one that will need a lot of work before we see it in practice. So you're not going to start... Prescribing psychedelics to help your lifestyle patients in your in the clinic you're starting up. To help them become up. more mindful and do some exercise, have a bit of magic mushroom. No, I don't think I'm there yet. Not yet. Watch I mean, this space. Yeah, I think you're right. I think watch this space. I mean, this, it feels like the sky is the limit with them. However, the limit may be sort of quite a lot lower than the sky. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks for listening, listeners. I hope you found it as interesting and as well as fascinating as we did. Um, as always, the link, links will be in the show notes. And um, yeah. Enjoy the rest of the summer. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Cami Hirons, with special guest, Dr. Alan Young. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter, at journalspotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grants. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are our opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.